Welcome back to another episode of the Best Minutes Podcast. Each week, Movies by Minutes hosts examine the 1946 William Wyler-directed film, The Best Years of Our Lives, one minute of screen time per episode. I'm Josh Horowitz from 5 Minutes of Trouble and 5 Minutes of Bonsai, and my co-host back again is Brett Stillo. Welcome back again, Brett. Uh, hi, Josh. Hello. Oh, you sound relaxed. Uh, no, that's not my relaxed voice. It's my sad voice. I'm a little melancholy. We're, we're at the, we are running out of episodes. Our, our tenure on the best years minutes is we're down. This is a, this is our penultimate episode. Yes, penultimate, indeed. Did I say that right? Penultimate? No, no, that, that's oh, good. Really perfect. I think that's the first time I've ever used that word in a sentence. So <laughs> I knew what it meant, but there we go. But I am excited because uh, we have a really excited guest. And you listeners are in for a treat. Yes, if you like films, you're going to definitely like our next guest. And that is Jake Isgar, who is here. And I wanted to uh, welcome him. Uh, so welcome. <laughs> well, thank you, thank you, fellas, for for having me. I enjoy yeah. I enjoy watching watching movies at picture shows or picture houses, yeah, whatever yeah. they're called. So yeah, uh, so, yeah. <laughs> Jake, I understand fun. you're a a freelance film programmer, formerly of the Alamo Draft House New Mission in San Francisco. Yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, I uh, scooted over from uh, Austin, Texas, uh, to program at the New Mission in april of 2019 and then march of 2020 for some odd reason uh shut our doors um who knows why uh but uh, i've been been hanging slamming back in the cut watching movies reading and listening to listening to pods like 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 y'all's and just uh, excited to talk to you guys and sorry to talk about talk about this movie yes and i'm I'm gonna gush for a minute i hope i don't embarrass you jake but jake you hosted a a wonderful show uh, called Weird Wednesdays, where, mm-hmm. yeah, we, you would show, I guess, what, for lack of a better word, cult movies. Uh, but your introductions and your insights on, on these movies uh, were always really uh, entertaining and insightful. I, I, uh, I learned so much. It was like, you know, I, I have a new respect for Tammy and the T-Rex. And folks, if you haven't seen Tammy and the T-Rex, Make sure you watch the gore version. Don't watch the clean version. <laughs> Tam and the T-Rex. Also directed by William Wyler. It's one of his finer films. <laughs> <laughs> True story. Has uh, Best Years of Our Lives actually ever shown over at the Alamo? Oh, man. I, I was gearing up for it. Um, I was gearing up for it for Memorial Day um, mm. weekend. So it was, it was, it was in the cards. In the case of a movie like the best years of our lives, things that are uh, canonical can be really daunting. I think one good thing about getting asked to uh, to 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 speak about something like like this movie is being able to sit down and maybe watch. I I'd seen parts of it before, but not in its entirety. But be able to sit and just like watch a movie like this from beginning to end that was lauded as an amazing achievement. And by golly, what a film! By <laughs> what a golly. picture! It's it's a masterpiece. Like, yeah, I mean, this is this movie's incredible. Like, not only in its, I mean, I know you all have devoted time to talk about it minute <laughs> by minute, but man, this is a protein rich movie, and it's just dense with, um, oh man, it's just it's just it's just great. Like, it's uh, great in its psychological complexity and its emotional complexity, and the but not only with those complexities, but the performances are just so stark and so straightforward, and it's really painfully honest movie in so many respects. Like. 
it's just it's uh, yeah it's just it's definitely one that's gonna and the reason why it's persisted for for so long um yeah it's just a wonderful movie like i, I, I the one you know, add add me to the to the 70 plus year uh bandwagon for this one it's it's mm. a, it's a good one <laughs> and for uh, the, for the listeners at home just to uh, keep us uh, in in the moment this is actually minute 139 of that film and uh, this is the one that starts with fred and homer walking past the roberts building and it ends with homer walking home uh but uh, but yes please keep going <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm really glad. I'm really glad that this was. This ended up being the minute, um, because I think that uh, one thing I think that really what sets this movie apart. I know that you all talk about this. It's just sort of even in a moment of small business, where it's really an interstitial scene. Like we're going from really, really like probably the show. Some of the one of the showcase moments for for Dean Andrews's character and for for Harold Russell's character where they they punch the anti-semite which is so satisfying like that that dude punching through that like crashing through that glass in the middle of that store the biggest set that's in that movie uh either besides the the dance hall like it's just this sort of thunderous moment and you're just you're with um you know Fred's just been put upon like so much and you're just kind of seeing him kind of restore his dignity hmm. and really kind of uh, his friend with 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 Homer, who has been you know really nothing but just like the epitome of the good soldier of the person that has like really put themselves out there and believes in the cause that he I mean, he didn't exactly fight for you know losing you know losing his losing his hands in a in an incident that was you know outside of, of battle which which mimicked you know what happened to to Harold Wilson in real life but it's just this this big thunderous moment and the scene afterwards is this culmination of all of of all of his, you know, uh, pent up uh, uh, self loathing and, and and fear of, you know, if if his if if Wilma's actually going to love him, like how can he provide a real life for for this woman? And and it's just so you're just like, what's the what's the what's the sinew? Like what's the tissue that's going to connect it? And a moment that's just like quick as this, like it just works. Like the thing that makes this movie, I think, so remarkable is there really is like a sense of honesty and camaraderie between these guys. Mm-hmm. And so much of it comes from, uh, comes from it. I mean, in my opinion, uh, just from doing some more like background research, like the reason why this movie works is because the three characters are essentially broken pieces of a, of the same psyche of like the post-war psyche, the, the, that sort of anxiety of like, what am I going to do next? Like, how can I, how can I take, my life has been so irrevocably changed by going from, you know, the fabrication of the image and the fabrication of culture through Hollywood into as real of a scenario as possible. Yeah. I think cinematically it was interesting just with the fact that you normally would see a scene where a bus pulls up, you know, there'd be a shot where the camera changes. Now you see the bus pull up or whatever here. You see the reflection in the glass. I I don't know if there's anything sort of deeper that goes with it, but it's, it's kind of a neat uh, effect it kind of reminds you that this may not have been a backlot this it is it gives it more of a feel of a real place um i believe they shot this on the goldwyn lot um which i don't know a lot about but you know i did wonder you know as we pass the roberts building and you you know you wonder was that sign put there for this movie or was it been there you know you do see um ooh, i just forgot the name of the fictitious this fictional city you know the record store is uh, Boone City. Boone That's City. Right. Boone Thank City you. Record Shop. The Boone City Record Shop, which I hope is still there. <laughs> uh, 
But, you know, yeah, it, it did make me wonder, um, you know, how many other movies I'd seen on this lot. You know, how many other characters, actors that I see walk uh, down that street in different movies. Uh, but, yeah, at the same time, I, I noted, yeah, this, this does not seem like, uh, you know, some, sometimes you watch an old movie and, yeah, that's, that's definitely uh, a back lot. But this feels very real and, you know, kind of natural lighting. You know, one name we've been talking about a lot is uh, in our tenure is uh, Greg Toland. Right. And how he, at various times of this movie, made it look un-1940s, you know, using a lot of deep focus and, mm -hmm. you know, foreground and background. You know, a, a seasoned uh, cinematographer knows when it's just like, eh, let's just uh, do a dolly track and kind of keep it simple. But it's, uh, but it's still effective. You know, we're, we are with... Homer and Fred as they're having this little uh, chat. And then, yeah, it stops right there. So, um, yeah, in some ways it's it's very routine, kind of a studio shot, but it's also an example of, uh, you know, the Hollywood system just churning them out. Well, you know, you know, they're, they're both standing in front of that Boone City music shop and uh, Homer's got a big decision to, ma to make the, coming up. So the fact that he's in front of the music shop but not facing it, does that imply that Homer needs to face the music? Hmm. <laughs> Perhaps he does. Mm. Um, but, but one thing, too, I mean, with Tolan's, and, and you know, he's known a lot for the deep, deep focus photography, um, not just with this, but with Citizen Kane and all this stuff. But I think one thing that is really great in all the real showy deep focus shots of this film is uh they're there when they it's almost like looking at a great splash panel like you're reading like a jack kirby comic or something where it's like it's leading up to something and then mm. boom it's like there sort of emotions of a scene are are taking place uh like a scene that preceded this by a little bit is when uh uh fred and al meet at butch's and to to say hey you can't date peggy anymore <laughs> like that's not enough and then uh, Homer comes in with Butch, and they do. They play the they play the song on the piano, and you have that gorgeous, gorgeous shot of of uh, Fred in the back on the phone, Al between them, the guys the guys that are sitting at the bar, and Butch and Homer playing, and it's all these three these three guys in this moment projecting three different emotions that are all mm -hmm. kind of like fusing to a whole, and even in something like that, which is emotionally the thing that Wyler and Toland are really building towards. Because Visually, there is still, you know, speaking of the naturalism, there is this sort of tightness of just like, we only want to show the audience what these characters are seeing. Uh, just want to show what's necessary and what feels like real. So, even in something as simple as like a tighter sort of dolly, it's like, a, you know, a mid, like a mid, uh, a medium shot, these guys walking. Um, it's just it's just one shot with the in the the bus the bus in the in the reflection. It's just like we don't need like you said we don't need a cutaway. Uh, it's just there, and I think there's a lot of moments in this movie that do show uh, mirrors and reflections and ways to kind of use that in that that keeps the sort of tightness of the space like always there. It's not a movie. It's a movie that's full of interiors and and full of characters trying to relate to one another that are split between doorways or split between, you know, phone booths or spots at a soda jerk fountain. Like it's, it, it is kind of built around that and, and Toland and, and Weiler, like 
really, really focus in on that, I feel. Yeah, I just had a thought where you were mentioning before about how the three main characters are almost like part of the same experience. I'm sure somebody in a film class could probably write how the three characters uh, reflect, say, you know, the id, the ego, and the superego. I can't speculate on sure. how that works exactly, but you probably go there somehow. <laughs> yeah, or you know, I mean, uh, you could, the the three stages of man. You you know, mm. you have a you have an old man, you have a young man, almost a boy. Uh, you know, Homer at times. Mm. You know, we love Homer, but he's it's almost like he's twelve. Mm. And uh, then you know, Fred. I think I've mentioned this before. You know, Fred is a. Uh, I, one, I think the only problem I have with Fred is that Dana Andrews on screen projects this maturity. He seems like he's about 35, yeah. which is fine. But, you know, in reality, Fred should be 23, 24. I think that the character of Fred was a kid who suddenly got a lot of responsibility as a bombardier. Hmm. And, yeah. you know, now he's back in the real world. You know, it's interesting, you know, that, that you mentioned the fact that he's supposed to be younger, but he seems older. I, I kind of had the thought throughout the whole thing that, yes, I mean, he's, he's like in his mid-30s. And that kind of makes it even that much more tragic, the fact that he has to work back as a soda jerk. You know, here, here he is, you know, if, if, if he's in his mid-30s, that's, that's really bad. I can get it if he left and he was in his early 20s. So, you know, it, it, it makes you feel more for him, I think, the fact that he looks a little bit older and acts that way. That's a good, that's a very good point. That's a very good point because, yeah, there's, you know, there's the reality versus, you know, the actual drama that, uh, you know, who comes to mind is, is uh, Farley Granger, uh, who was doing a lot of movies back then. Yeah, I think he was in his, in his mid-20s, and he probably would have had the right look for Fred. Hmm. But, yeah, it's, it is, you're right. It is especially like, yeah, here's this man. Yeah. named Dana Andrews uh, in this kid's job. And it, it is, you know, maybe that's more important is the fact that, you know, he's like, you know, it is just an awkward position for poor Fred. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's funny you mentioned Farley Granger. Uh, I was just reading the uh, a couple chapters in that great, great Mark Harris book, uh, Five Came Back, um, that Farley Granger was, I think, Samuel Goldwyn's, like, main pick to play Homer. Homer. Before... Uh before Homer was going to, before Wyler was like, no, we need to, I want to have a non-professional actor. Like I want someone that was actually like in the, in the service. Uh, but yeah, so it's funny you mentioned Farley Granger because yeah. Yeah, that's, that's kind of dead on. Um, but I feel that about Dan Andrews too. I mean, his age is, the, to what you're saying about the three sort of, I don't know if I want to get into like any Lacanian psychoanalysis with the three <laughs> guys, but I do think, but I do think that like, and Wyler was very explicit with this too, is, you know, these three guys represent very specific cross sections of the, the, the men coming home of the sort of socioeconomic and sort of age sort of discrepancies of the guys that were coming home. Like you do have, mm -hmm. you know, the, the, uh, irony of someone like Fred, who was a captain to uh, a banker, like Al, who's a family guy, like a pretty, a pretty set, you know, like upper, like upper middle-class guy, but Fred commanded all this respect and gained all this responsibility that he can't bring back with him. I mean, he has to work under what's the guy's name like Schmerkel or Merkel like some Urkel. He has Urkel. to work under Jaleel White <laughs> of Family Matters, one of one of the the Ur, the your the your Urkels. Um, but uh, yeah, like and, and someone like Homer who has like a pretty seems like a pretty tight knit like family group. 
uh, you know, like probably not as not as well to do as as the Stevenson family. Uh, you see all these sort of cross sections and the way in which these things kind of weave in and out of each other and weave in and out of their experience. Like it's really just really deft kind of storytelling, um, especially since Homer, you know, kind of disappears for a large portion of the movie. Uh, I think most of kind of the second act, like we don't really see Homer up until he comes back to Butch's. And then that scene that follows with him at the soda jerk place. And then you get his like his big, big emotional scene right after this mm-hmm. for, for a while, you really focus on, on the Fred and Peggy uh, stuff and the Fred and, and the Fred and Alice stuff too. And Alice sort of low key, really, really low key and hyper realistic alcoholism, hmm. um, which actually feels more into Dan Andrews experience uh, He's, you know, was very open about dealing with his with his alcoholism uh, at that point in his career, and mm-hmm. was very outspoken um, about it uh, later in his career uh, after he was Screen Actors Guild president. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's 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 in there. Like a lot of things were th- different experiences. Like, it's kind of the universality of the experiences in this movie. There are a lot of actors that can kind of that are bringing stuff into it, and Wyler's putting himself into it. Andrew's never served, but you can say that maybe some of Frederick March's sort of way he handles a drink kind of comes from maybe times in which he was dealing with, with Andrews or, you know, it's, it's a lot of that. So it's just an interesting sort of miasma of an experience. Hmm. Well, that's interesting. I didn't know that. Uh, I knew about Andrews alcoholism. I didn't know that was an issue at that point in his career. Cause if you look at Dana Andrews, um, you know, in this time, 1940, you know, first half of the 1940s, uh, that dude is on fire career-wise. If you look at the titles of the movies sure. he's in, and um, you know he is a presence. You know, it's a little sad. I mean, this happens with actors. He's he's kind of a forgotten figure now. But yeah, and then you know, the fact that he yeah he did have some problems, he overcame them, and like you said, he was he was open about it. You know, he had a he had a very long career. Um, but yeah, I didn't I wasn't aware like he was. You know, I can understand. You know, the pressures of Hollywood and everything, and you know. Maybe drinking uh, and getting excessive about it. Didn't know that was a problem at this juncture because you know you look at his body of work. He just seems so in, in control. I mean, of course, the detective and Laura, like that's one of the coolest characters in 1940s yeah. cinema. Huh. Yeah. But at the same time, I can imagine you're working without a Preminger and you might be a nervous wreck. <laughs> and you know, you do what you can to get through a scene. Uh, but, um, yeah, yeah. LSD had not been invented yet and <laughs> Preminger had not had it yet. So he hadn't, he hadn't mellowed out. Um, oh, skidoo, 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 but that's skidoo a minute. Oh, the sk- how, where to begin with the skidoo minute. But, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I, uh, I, I, I you know, I, I know some of our other hosts have probably covered the career of Dana Andrews in full. Josh, I don't know how much we've talked about Dana Andrews, but for me, it's interesting. Like this guy, I've kind of seen his career uh, in reverse, in retrograde. I was mm. familiar with this guy. Uh, you know, not, I want to say, yeah, they will call it the end of his career when he's you know doing a lot of you know guest roles on TV shows. You know, and he sort of mm. seems like the, you know, that that point towards the end of his career, he was sort of like, you know, mean banker or, you know, uh, you know, un, kind of unsympathetic roles. And uh, but then you see, yeah, his his work in the 40s. And uh, I, I have to mention uh, not I just have to mention The Curse of the Demon, one of my favorite horror movies that he's really. Oh, yeah. In. 
Yeah, Curse of the Demon, 1957. Incredible. Oh, very incredible movie. cool movie. Uh, where he's, it's, it's some of that, uh, Dana Andrews, it's that strength as a character. He's, uh, he's kind of like Indiana Jones in that, that look. Yeah. Yeah. He's got, you know, they're they're you know, he's, he's a character who says from the out that he's a psychiatrist and he says, Oh, you know, there is no supernatural things going on. Uh, but then supernatural things go on around, him, uh-huh. so, you know, and he's like, End of the movie, he's like, yeah, maybe there is. Hmm. Yeah. Well, one thing with Andrews, too, like, I'm curious about this. I mean, he he definitely, you know, his he kind of has, like, the perfect sort of arc for a 40s character actor. I mean, because he was, he could play a leading man. He's not boring, which is great, because most leading men, uh, I think, kind of had to have this blankness to them. Um, but as the sort of, as, you know, the, the, wartime period and post-war period you get the sort of hyper masculinization of american movies like someone like andrews like really kind of comes comes to prominence um i also think too that maybe you know could be due to his age he's getting into his early 40s by the time you're getting into the 50s um the the sort of change in tone of of sorts of movies like you're getting less harder boiled uh films you might still have like thrillers and domestic dramas and a lot of things but his his lane kind of got taken up by you know, like a Robert Mitchum huh. or uh, or uh, Kirk Douglas. Like, I think that those guys kind of took his lunch after a while in terms of the sort of roles you would imagine. Like, Out of the Past does seem like a movie that Dana Andrews would be in um, if he wasn't asked to do it. I mean, obviously, there are you know different contract players in different studios, but I think that's something that you know kind of happens when you know actors hit a certain age and maybe kind of fall out of favor uh, with certain things. And there also could be a case too to be made for his politics. I mean, he was very much. You don't become the head of the Screen Actors Guild in the '60s if you're very, uh, if you're pro, if you're, if you show any sort of uh, proclivities towards uh, uh, communism <laughs> or anything yeah. else. Like, yeah. So that's that's a case where like the sort of the sort of you know the sort of uh, political maybe kind of fall, fell into it too. Um, it's, it's kind of tough to say. I mean, I'm not, I'm no, I'm no scholar on Andrews' career or that or that period in Hollywood history. Um, I would love to hear Karina Longworth talk about him at some point. Uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, I'm, I'm curious. But yeah, he's he's cool and he's really really good in this. Yeah. Like he's he's so understated, and I think that's kind of what makes stuff work. Like he's understated. He's clearly the coolest guy of the bunch. And uh, you really, it, it's I'm glad you mentioned Indiana Jones with Curse of the Demon because like this is a Harrison Ford part. Mm. You really, you kind of do feel it. Like there was a movie, um, revisionist World War II movie that Peter Hyams made in the late seventies called uh, Hanover Street. Have you guys seen this? Yes, yes. No, so good. Yeah, yeah. Oh my god! Like one of the like, it's such a great movie. But yeah, like Ford, like Ford. I think and Andrews kind of share that same. I used the word laconic earlier to describe Into the Night. Um, Maybe we're talking off mic about about uh, uh, John Landis's uh, great film *Ends of the Night*, uh, but but yeah, like like Ford, like you kind of there's a world weariness to him. Like Andrews, to your point about him, you know, looking too old, like he kind of had to grow up a little bit sooner, and life might have passed him by a little bit. Uh, Fred's character, but yeah, you get a sense that he's both seen a lot of things, but he also hasn't had a chance to experience the things he would have liked to. Uh, just that sort of clash between his status in the air force, you know, making $400 a, a month 
as as his awful awful wife says at one point I, or i do um, like the uh, the title you just mentioned before though indiana jones and the curse of the demon that sounds like a good sequel <laughs> yeah let's do it let's get to five. work let's go let's get to work let's on go. that one you know one thing i want to say about dana andrews just semi-movie trivia is his voice mm. um it's it, it's it's a very distinct kind of cadence and you know there's a bit of an accent there and um you know it definitely some other guys come to mind that you, you're not sure where they're from mm. <laughs> yeah joseph cotton uh, had a voice that was kind of similar and and gregory peck uh gregory where peck, okay. yeah where it's like well you know when you listen to fred and you, you you hear fred's voice in this and you sort of hear that Omar, there's one thing I want you to do, and it's like, is is that New England or is that uh, what? Where is that? It's, I wonder uh, if that's Mid Atlantic. That's you know what I wonder is. So it turns out I did you know I did look up that uh, Andrews like Cotton was from the South. He was a Texan pretty mm. much, and you know yeah I wonder if that's if that's some stage training to kind of uh, soften a Southern accent or a, a mm. Southwestern accent. Um, but it, it's sort of, it, it's, you know, it, it's funny how Dana Andrews kind of hits his R's, kind of like Joseph Cotton hits his R's. And Gregory Peck has always been the weird one to me because that guy was from California. Hmm. And yet he sounded like he was maybe from Nova Scotia. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I love Gregory Peck. British a little bit. Huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, uh, you know, we've talked about the mid-Atlantic accent, you know, and I wonder if it, not, not heavy mid-Atlantic, but maybe the, in stage training, uh, they tried to lose some of the regional inflections. And yeah, Jake, I know you, growing up in the South, you might, you might have heard something in Dana's voice. <laughs> I'm from. I'm originally from Central Florida, and then tax, and then moved to Texas, um, Central Texas, which neither of which is the South. It's really strange. Like, <laughs> I wouldn't consider Central, Central Florida is not the South. It's not even really like that much of a snowbird area either, because like South Florida kind of feels like that. It's just mm. kind of like just where people just end up somehow for some reason it's very very tourist centric so you do get like a real real mix of of stuff and maybe like sort of like a new south uh style thing i mean and in austin like the joke is that it's the the sort of pink the pink dot in the in the rest of in the rest of the the state but mm. but yeah i mean i'm kind of looking at where boone city was supposed to stand in for and i was reading and for Cincinnati, which I think kind of tracks. Like you do kind of have it's, it's uh, South Ohio, mm -hmm. so you're close to Kentucky. Uh, you got to get a, you get a sense that like, especially with Fred's character, like he's from the other side of the. He lives basically his parents basically live in the shack. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe there is there maybe maybe he's not in Boone City proper. He could be across the river mm -hmm. in like a like a Lexington or like outside of a Lexington sort of thing. So his his voice and how he speaks relative to to uh homer uh relative to al like and and vis-a-vis -vis, like frederick march and his own sort of sensibility um it's a cool it's just a cool mix and i i just love i i loved reading about weiler trying to how he directed harold uh russell and how difficult it was for him because he wanted the authenticity he wanted him not to act which is something that you hear a lot of directors say, you know, kind of post method style, you know, post you hear a lot of like, like an Ilya Kazan talk about like getting that out of Brando, or getting out of Montgomery Clift or, you know, Rod Steiger. You don't, you don't necessarily hear that 
you know, coming out of um, directors of this this period. This is really kind of the the first which you would you would see that. At least so much of what makes Harold's performance work is the nonverbal. And even after the 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 shot of you know uh, Fred leaving, you go to him walking back up to his front porch and looking over and seeing the light on over at Wilma's house, like right next to where he lives, and he just he just has this this physicality to him that is just it's it's someone that is holding a bunch of bunch of self pity and self loathing mm-hmm. while also trying to push themselves forward, and it's just this real it's just real stuff like it's it's I mean, obviously you can't make it up that's part of this guy's life but it's it still fits within the realm of the performances and the the sort of moral ethical clarity of this movie i think self-loathing and self-pity that that's a good way to kind of sum up homer yeah yeah and that um you know it's what I've alluded to as we've been doing this podcast is it's it's an old Hollywood studio kind of filmmaking pushed to its edge, and um, which I think makes is what it makes it a, a timeless movie. One thing I, I wanted to ask you guys about it's not that important, but you know when Homer walks up to the house, I was trying to determine if that was a day for night or if it was just something exterior that was really well lit. It looked like a real neighborhood. Not uh, a studio backlot neighborhood. So yeah. I think, I mean, again, that's sort of Weiler trying to make uh, this movie as as real and as naturalistic as possible. Yeah, looking at it closely, I mean, you can tell that the you know the the sidewalk is not perfectly manicured, and you know there's little bits of dirt and grime all over the place. Yeah, I mean, this this does look like a could be a real place. One thing you see, especially earlier in the movie when they're dropping off they're dropping off fred back at his place we're trying to and it doesn't work there's a lot of really good seamless uh reprojection exterior whether it's a back lot or a set like this and if anything it reminded me a lot of um shadow of a doubt the the neighborhood in hitchcock shadow of a doubt speaking of uh joe cotton and Teresa wright too who's in this mm-hmm. um that i didn't get a sense that it was day for night i think with day for night you generally would see that uh, it's both a budgetary and a time constraint, which I don't really think was totally at play here. Um, it just just seems probably just like yeah, Tolan's just like yo, I know how to light. <laughs> we have the we have the the the, 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 the lamp post doing most of the work, and then you're kind of supplementing it elsewhere. Um, because with Day for Night too, you kind of get a, there's like a weird milkiness to it. I think right the sort of contrast, the contrast you see in the sky and characters kind of walking in, but yeah, it's just a really just a really kind of neatly composed sort of shot well the thing that struck me the most about this is this seems to me the the first time that you get to actually see uh homer's character in full shot you know everything head to toe wearing that very nice looking suit with the hooks and i i think if there was ever a time in this film where you you kind of really get the impact of homer's character and and the actor himself having gone through this sacrifice it's here yeah this this is not a complete man that we're watching yet he is and it's it's just it it gives you that sense of uh, being a a bit unsettled but you know at this point you you've you've been around this character enough that you know the the shock is gone but you know it, it is impactful to see him like this and i believe this is the first time in this movie we see this particular character alone 
you know, there's a scene earlier where he's getting ready for bed, but you know, we know his father's nearby. But this time, um, you know, there's there's no one around. There's no one nearby. He is by himself. There there isn't even you know Butch to kind of just you know tell me he's a goofy kid. So I think this is the first, maybe this, in this movie, I think it's the first time Homer has a chance to just, like, maybe hear his own voice. At this point, unless you know the true story of, uh, of that that's playing him, you're not really sure if they are actual, if he is using, you know, the, those are prosthetic, you know, hooks, or it's just an actor that's kind of playing it, right? And it's the way, even the way it's photographed, it's above his shoulder, you're not really sure. And then in the following scene, to your point, yeah, so you see him in a wide shot going in. And then when, you know, Wilma like comes up and helps him, helps him undress and he is, you know, the first time we see him that, you know, literally naked, uh, that's for somebody like, oh, wow. Yeah. This guy actually, this is actually what his life is. This is actually how he's going to do it. And he's opening himself up to, to her and she's so willing to give herself to him. Like she's been his the whole time. <laughs> and he's just yeah. opening himself up to understanding that like, oh, she can love me. Like. Not that she can let me, she already does. Like I will I need to allow myself to let this love into my life. Yeah. And so this movie is just kind of how characters are figuring out ways to, you know, they're looking at mirrors, they're going through doors, they're figuring out how they want to be perceived by people that are close to them and how they actually are perceived. It it's just it's just, but it, it doesn't draw attention to itself. It's not, that's what's so remarkable about this movie is that it's all there in the text. Like, Weiler makes it apparent. Like, it's not leaving things up to the imagination, but it's not, it's just kind of drifting it your way. And it, it, it's, it's just a remarkable movie. Well, Jake, I mean, I think we got through this this minute uh, with, with quite a bit more than I thought we were going to do because uh, it is a bit of a, a slow thing but uh but thank you very much for for coming on and, and discussing all of this with us oh but before we go so i i understand that uh you you may be associated with uh, a, a certain audra wolfman perhaps super lucky audra rules um so <laughs> we were um, at at the theater had the very very distinct privilege of um working with amoeba music to co-present weird wednesday so that's part of the main reason i would say like why why brett and i know each other just from all of our lobby talks before and after, uh, you know, whatever. Just oh, we just saw Timothy Carey, you know, get smited in the world's greatest sinner. Cool, let's talk about <laughs> it for 20 minutes. Uh, Audra and Shona and the other folks in the Amoeba were very nice to reach out to ask me to kind of record some stuff for their social media. So I've been doing this thing called Screen Trade, where it's kind of, you know, put, put two movies together and chat about them a bit. And uh, yeah, hope people go to Amoeba and check it out and start there and explore and watch more stuff. So you have, start the podcasts and have in-depth conversations about <laughs> Tom Hansen's The Zodiac Killer or or Wild Beasts or Spike Lee's Summer of Sam or, or something really fun. So it's just been really nice and I, I really enjoy uh, very, I'm very proud to be associated with Amoeba. They're right down the street from me. So it's really cool. Great. Well, for anybody who happens to be in the San Francisco area, check out Amoeba and hopefully uh, eventually the Alamo Drafthouse new mission if it comes back. Um, I don't know when, but it's a great place to see movies and, you know, it's, uh, it'll be a good time. You should totally go into the Roxy and the Balboa and, you know, all the, all the screens in town that are, you know, playing new releases, repertory films. Uh, it's just, it's cool. It's cool to get back into a theater, you know, if you feel safe and comfortable. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's, uh, if you can go for it, support your local art house and support your local picture house. Awesome. 
Well, uh, for the rest of our listeners, you can find the Best Minute Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Play, or at the main site, thebestminutes.com. Social media is available at Butch's Place, the Best Years of Our Lives Listeners Cafe on Facebook and on Twitter at The Best Minutes. Uh, Jake, thanks so much for being on the show. Yeah, thanks. Uh, great having you. And uh, yeah, great talking uh, cinema with you. And hope to see you uh, at a movie soon. All right. Well, please join us here next time on The Best Minute. Hey, Joe, you better hurry up out there because she's taking off soon. Right, thanks. Come on, Taylor.